Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. We're friends, but friends are not. He's still our Lord. And so we wanna make sure we're not bringing him down and just saying, yeah, me and Jesus, we're buds, you know, we hang out and yeah, that might be true, but he is Lord, he's creator, he's savior, he's transformer, he's our life, he's our hope, he's our peace. He's much more than any other friend. today's broadcast, we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, The Vine and the Branches. We will take up in verse 11 of John chapter 15 and finish the chapter. We continue to look at what Jesus tells us about abiding in Him and what that will mean for us, what it will mean for our relationship with Him, with other Christians, and the rest of the world. So let's listen in. Well, these things, verse 11, I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be filled or full. Listen, first promise to all who abide in Jesus was fruit. The second revealed that it's the fruit of the Spirit, love. And joy is evidence that we're walking in the Spirit and experiencing and sharing His love. Because, well, Galatians 5.22 says of this issue that um, the fruit of the Spirit is love, not the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Listen, the fruit is love. And then all of these other things that begin to describe what love looks like and how it impacts us and those around us. If I'm loving because I'm abiding, then I'm gonna be filled with joy. I'm gonna have the peace of God that surpasses understanding. I'm gonna be long-suffering and patient and kind to all those around me. I'll be faithful and gentle and there'll be self-control because the fruit of the Spirit is in fact self-control. So here's how this plays out. If there's no love, those other things won't be there either. They are connected to and the result of abiding in him and loving like him. So the fruit is the fruit of the spirit and that's love. And now he mentions joy. And it's a sure test if I'm abiding in him is I, am I overflowing the joy that, that I feel when I'm serving him and obeying him and walking in fellowship with him? Because there's real joy in knowing who you are and why you're here and knowing what you're to do and doing it. Our identity is in him. Our purpose is in him. Our power comes from him. Our everything, the call on our lives, the fruit from our lives, it all takes us back to an intimate, personal relationship with him. Well, this is my commandment, he says then, that you love one another as I've loved you. Earlier he said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I've loved you. Now he doesn't call it a new commandment because he already gave it to him. It's just his commandment that we love one another the way he loves us. By the way, when he first gave it to him and called it new, he said, by this all will know you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. Greater love has no one, verse 13, 
than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now, you should know, and I'm sure you do, this is prophetic. He will be on a cross before the next day is, is you know, fully, fully moving. It's like he is hours away from arrest and six trials and then crucifixion. So when he says greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends, he means that literally. And he's about to demonstrate that he means it literally. Here's what's important to us. It's also an example to the 11. Judas having already betrayed him, having already left have already made his decision, sealed his fate. Jesus speaks to the 11 and he's saying, you are going to need to do what I do and that's lay down your life for your friends. And many have, they did. Stephen would. Maybe we'll come back to him. I mentioned him recently. Well, you are my friends, he says, if you do whatever I command you. Now, I don't know how many friends you have or what the nature of your friendships are, but I don't have any friends that command me to obey them or I'm like, see ya. It's like, hey, I, I, I'm going to obey the Lord. I'm not looking for people to tell me what to do because you don't know what I'm supposed to do. You can say, hey, what you just did there, that's not really, a, you know, that's not in keeping with, with somebody who calls himself a Christian. Hey, you can call one another out lovingly, speak the truth in love with a view toward making sure that everybody gets that there are some things Christians just shouldn't say and some things Christians just shouldn't do. And so earlier he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now he says, if, if you, you know, want to be my friend, I command you, do whatever I command you. And so, so obedience, again, is one way we prove we love him. And now he makes it a test and proof of our friendship with him. And this is so important. As, as we, in our generation, and well, in generation, it's, it's a broad term, but in, in this season of um, our Christian experiences, People have a much more observable, it seems, intimate relationship with Jesus. I'm not saying people didn't have it in the past, but I'm saying they didn't talk about Jesus like he was a buddy or a friend or, you know, yeah, me and Jesus, we hang out. And, but, but listen, it's okay with him that we do because he's the one who said he wants us to be friends, not just forgiven, not just servants, though forgiven and servants, not just forgiven and servants, but family. And not just family, but friends. He calls us friends. So it's okay for us to say, I'm a friend of God. David was a friend of God. There are others called that. So, but, but here's what you need to know. Friends are still, well, the, the, the rules of friendship are still guided by the other relationships that we have in, in, in with that person. So, so where I'm going with this, if you're a boss and you make friends with your employees, that might work out really well for you. It might not. 
If you're an employee and you make friends with your boss, well, the, the line can get obscured between boss and, and friend, and you can really mess up a good thing by forgetting he's the boss. And you, if you are the boss, you can mess things up by not making sure your employees do what they're supposed to do. And so here's where I'm going with this. We're friends, but friends are not. He's still our Lord. And so we want to make sure we're not bringing him down and just saying, yeah, me and Jesus, we're buds, you know, we hang out. And yeah, that might be true, but he is Lord. He's creator. He's savior. He's transformer. He's our life. He's our hope. He's our peace. He's much more than any other friend could be ever to us. So no longer do I call you servants, though all his disciples will identify them as such, for a servant doesn't know what his master's doing. But I've called you friends for all things I heard from my father I've made known to you. Chosen, discipled, commissioned, empowered, sent out to preach, to teach, to heal. And, and, and listen, they all chose to follow him. And he goes on to say, though, and some are confused by verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed. That word can also mean ordained you, that you should go and bear fruit <clears throat> and that your fruit should remain. Now, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. When he says we didn't choose him, he means we didn't choose him first. He initiates we reciprocate or reject his offer of life, uh, of friendship, of, of the life he intended for us. So he, some want to take this further and say, well, he chose us, so we don't even have a choice. That's never true. If he chose you, he chose you in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. So people are like, well, there it is. Then, well, where's my choice in it? You can choose to say yes or no, just as it is with marriage. I can't remember who first used the illustration. Probably not a good one, but nevertheless, if um, you had what was known back in the day as a shotgun wedding, you know, uh, it was a forced marriage and it went the other direction, though, that you, you were able to, to force someone to marry you and she was cooking for you, well, I'd make sure the dog was tasting everything I ate before I'd ever uh, have a bite. Why? Because if you force someone into a relationship they have no choice in, and they had no decision in, well, that, that person's like a slave, but not, not a bond slave, not someone who chooses to serve you as all Christians are supposed to do to one another, as all husbands are supposed to serve their wives and wives their husbands. We're all supposed to serve the Lord. My point is simply this. Jesus chose first, and then we either said, yes, Lord, I want to be yours. I know you created me. I've been living my own life without you. I, I want to live my life for you. I want to really know you, not just know about you. So he chooses and then we choose yes or no. He gives us that freedom. And then he says he appointed you to go and bear fruit. How do you bear fruit? You abide in him. That's been the theme of this whole thing. But he, then he says not just fruit and more fruit and much fruit, but that your fruit should remain. Lasting fruit, 
That's important. And then he attaches a promise of answered prayer. So again, he mentioned it earlier. Now he comes back to it. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you that you'd love one another. So he says abiding in Jesus will lead to fruit. They'll lead to love. And now he adds something that isn't really like the others, and that's hatred. If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the context. He's talking to his disciples. They're at the Last Supper, knowing the cross is just ahead. He's told them again and again. They still haven't put it together. But he's saying, no, here's what awaits you. The world that hates me is going to hate you. The world he's speaking of is a combination of hypocritical religious leaders, self-righteous religious leaders who will join forces with, well, the, the civil leaders, the ungodly or godless civil leaders of the day, simply in an attempt to make sure Jesus is crucified. They, the Jews, would have stoned people in that day. They didn't have the right to crucifixion, so they had to go through Rome. And Jesus had to die on the cross because the scriptures all prophesied that he would. Now, I don't know how much of that they were putting together, if any, but I do know this. He says, the way they loved me, or hated me, because he will say both will be your experience. Here he starts with the hate. And, um, but he says, the way they treated me, they're going to treat you. He's saying you shouldn't expect any better treatment than I'm going to receive at their hands. Their malice, their hatred for me is going to be your experience as well. And we know this is true because after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, before they'd seen him alive, they're hiding out behind locked doors. And he shows up and they're like, oh, it's a ghost. And he's like, I'm not a spirit. Handle me. A spirit hath not flesh and bone as you see I have. So, so anyway, um, in his new body, certainly um, a perfected and perfect body, not what we might envision because they, they could see the, the wounds in his hands. He tells Thomas later, a week later, handle me and see, you know, put your fingers right here. Well, anyway, um, he is not, by the way, talking about all the people in the world. He says, you're not of the world. The world hates you, you know. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. He's not talking about all the people in the world because he loves the people in this world. He died for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. But what he is talking about is that portion and those people that hate him that are going to hate them. And that's why in 1 John, and we'll see it some months from now, well, a while a way out. Uh, do not love the world, he says, or literally stop loving the world and the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, 
but is of the world, and the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. What he is talking about as it gets beyond them is the godless world system that still hates him, that still embrace everything that he abhors and, and rejects everything that he desires. And so he says, they're going to hate you. And so we shouldn't expect better treatment than he received or that they received. Listen, we are living in the days prophesied by Isaiah when he said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and, and deception for truth. And, and listen, we are living in such a time, but we need to remember that God loves the people who don't love him. And such were some of us, all sorts of sin, dead in trespasses and sin, but he still loved us and reached out to us and he died for us buried and risen again. So all of that brings us to this. Remember the word, verse 20, I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they'll do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. These words are applied to those who persecute the messengers and those who receive their words. He says, you're going to get two responses. People are going to reject and hate you, or they're going, to, they're going to receive and love you. And he's saying their relationship to Jesus will be the deciding factor. And then he adds, and this would have shocked many in that day, those who reject him, they don't know the father either. Saul of Tarsus, named after King Saul, persecuted Christians, hated them, was there at the, the stoning of Stephen who looked up into heaven and said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the power on high. He prayed, Father, don't lay this sin to their charge. Don't put it on their account. Saul heard all that. And then he's on his way to the Damascus Road, on the Damascus Road to go to Damascus, arrest Christians. He had papers authorizing their arrest, bring them back to stand trial and be put to death. That's Saul. And on that road, this, this guy whose heart is just committed to wipe out Christianity because he thinks he's serving the Father. He thinks he's pleasing God. All of a sudden, knocked off his horse, he's in the dirt, he's blinded, and he hears a voice from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, well, who are you, Lord? He knew it was the Lord, but he doesn't know who the Lord was. He said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Ultimately, he says, what do you want me to do? I used this example recently, but it's good to revisit it because Saul thought he was pleasing God when he was doing everything he could to wipe out the, the church that Jesus died to birth. And so there are many today who truly and honestly believe they're serving God, they're pleasing God, they're doing something right when they're trying to wipe out Christians or take out anybody who says Jesus is Lord or Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Well, Jesus goes on then to say, 
after just reminding us relationship with him is always the deciding factor on how we, uh, what kind of response we can expect from people. If I'd not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. It sounds confusing because we know all of sin and all do sin, but he means they wouldn't have this sin. They wouldn't be guilty of what they're doing, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. Again, they wouldn't have been guilty of rejecting me, but I did the works the father gave me to do. And now they've seen and also hated both me and the father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, as he did earlier, Jesus promises another comforter, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, my new King James calls him a helper. My old King James called him a comforter. Our next study will focus a huge amount of our time on him and his work. But when the helper comes, he says, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. It's an important reminder, an essential reminder that the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus. He does a lot of other things and we'll spend time on them next time. But know this, whatever's going on, if it's a work of the Spirit, Jesus is going to be magnified. Jesus is going to be lifted up. Jesus is going to be the focus. Nor, by the way, does the Holy Spirit come to make us happy. That would be the happy spirit, and he's not that. He's the Holy Spirit, and he comes to make us holy. He comes to sanctify us and separate us, and, and, and he does the work in us that Jesus was doing for them. He's the teacher. He's the comforter. He's the reminder. He's the revealer. But again, all that's ahead. So, so get this. He gives us gifts, but those gifts are tools to work with, not toys to play with. He doesn't gift us so people will be in awe of what we do, that they would be in awe that what God is doing. And, and they realize, man, this is the power of God. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. Even Pharaoh and his foolish counselors had to admit this is the hand of God. This is the power of God. All of that to say, whatever's going on, whenever believers gather together in your home, in our fellowship, anywhere in this world, if the Holy Spirit's working, Jesus will be the focus. He'll be magnified. So finally, John says here in John 15, that abiding in Jesus will lead to fruit. That fruit will be demonstrated in loving God and loving people. That hatred will be the response of those who refuse to love God and love people. And that the comfort of the Spirit will keep us in the midst of those trials. Lord, how grateful we are today. For most people, we learn early on what it means to love another person. And if you really consider what it is that you've learned about love, outside of what the Bible teaches, 
it's going to boil down to how you feel about them. Now, this is what can make it so difficult for us to deal with Jesus's command that we should love our enemies. I can't force myself to feel a certain way about another person, especially when I already have feelings for them, and perhaps those feelings are ones that I would not associate with love. Well, in today's study, we see Jesus clarify something. In verse 12, he reiterated his commandment, love one another as I have loved you. Now, if you really think about it, Jesus showed his love for us by laying his life down for us. What he did for us is really a lot more important than how he feels about us. And if we're going to make sense out of what it means to love others as Jesus loved us, we need to realize that it starts with how we treat other people. Perhaps the feelings will come later. I hope they do. But loving another person biblically is an action and not a warm, fuzzy feeling. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.